You guys ready to get into Colossians? Good. Good. We're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off. Our uh, passage this morning is going to be Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And if you're using a Bible we provide, it's on page 984. Page 984. You'll notice the, uh, the title on the bulletin, right? God's saving work. And I'll tell you, kind of like most of the passages in Colossians, this is really this is a gospel passage. This is a gospel passage. It is about salvation, the salvation that God has made available through his son, Jesus Christ. And so I just want to emphasize that for, for those of you who are maybe just desiring to know more about the truths of the gospel, how to better articulate it, because again, the, the gospel is a, is, a, is a message that can be proclaimed and explained briefly, but, but is, it is so magnificent and glorious, and, and there are so many truths to take into consideration that God's made known in this wonderful work of salvation he's made available for sinful men to be reconciled to him. And so the, the depths are immeasurable. And so we're going to get to experience some of the depths in this passage. And then also, for those of you who don't know Christ, who, who don't know the gospel, who, who don't understand uh, the need, your need to be reconciled to God, and, and the fact that he's made forgiveness of sins available in Christ, well, this is for you as well to understand what God has revealed. The truth about the world he's created, the truth about man and his natural condition and his need to have fellowship with God, be reconciled to God, and what God has done to provide that. So, listen up. Listen up. Salvation, the gospel, this is God's saving work. A brief review, just to to set us into the passage we're in. Last time we were in verses 11 to 12 in chapter 2, where we saw Paul begin to explain how the Colossians had received true spiritual fullness through faith in Christ, how they had received that spiritual fullness through faith. He pointed them back to God's complete and sufficient spiritual work upon them at the time of their salvation. I mean, he's speaking to them. Their faith is in Christ. He's going back, pointing them back to the day of their salvation. He's saying, here's what God has done. God, he says, had circumcised their hearts. And their spiritual deadness had been removed. And their old self, which was hardened in rebellion and hostility to God, was put to death and buried. That old self has been done away with. And God has raised them to newness of life in Christ. He's given them spiritual life. They had been made new creations in Christ with a new heart and a new spirit, and in Christ they possess the fullness of his spiritual life. Now in verses 13 to 15, Paul continues to speak of the completeness and sufficiency of the saving work of God upon those who have placed their faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that. Colossians is about the completeness and sufficiency of Christ's work on behalf 
of sinners to reconcile them to God, the completeness and sufficiency of Christ and his salvation. Paul begins in verse 13 by reminding the Colossians of the completeness of their helplessness and hopelessness, their natural, wretched condition before God graciously intervened and saved them. In verse 13, starting in verse 13, the first part of it, he tells them, again, this is who they were, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And we'll stop right there. This was their former natural state, spiritually dead, separated from God, and devoid of spiritual life. And this is all of us in our natural state, what we are born into. We are, we are born in sin. We are born this way, having inherited the corrupted nature of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And they sinned against God. After he had created them, he had given them blessing, fellowship with him, dominion over the earth. But they sinned against him and brought spiritual death and corruption and separation from God upon themselves and thus upon the rest of the human race that has descended from them. So in our natural state, born in sin, born spiritually dead and separated from God. And Paul reminds them, the Colossians, of this former hopeless existence. They were dead in their trespasses, that is, in their sins, in their offenses against God, their continual violation of his righteous standards. This is what characterized their lives. The life of a a natural man is a life of transgressions. Because the natural man is spiritually dead and separated from God. So he sins. He lives a life of sin against God because he is by nature a rebel, by nature a sinner. His natural, man's natural inclination is away from God and towards sin. It's a bent towards rebellion. Man neither desires nor is able to love and serve God in and of himself, in his natural state. Rather, he's driven by love of self. And thus he seeks to serve only himself. And this propels him towards all kinds of unrighteousness, a life of transgressions. Because who is he living for? It is not for the glory of God. It is not to serve and love and honor God. It is to serve and love and honor himself. And that propels him to a life of unrighteousness and transgressions. And God himself declared, we go all the way back to Genesis, God himself declared that the intention, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Why? Because it is bent away from God. This was the Colossians' former natural state. And Paul said earlier in chapter 1 that they were alienated from God and hostile in mind towards God, as evidenced by their evil deeds. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes further to show the Colossians just how hopelessly lost they were. 
Not only were they dead in their trespasses, Paul says they were dead in the uncircumcision of their flesh. So not only were they separated from God as sinners who were rebellious towards God, he's implying that they were separated from God as pagan Gentiles in the uncircumcision of their flesh, dead in their sins, but but separated from God also as pagan Gentiles. They were the uncircumcised. They did not belong to God's chosen nation. They had not received his special written revelation. They did not have his promises of blessing and salvation and a future. They were excluded from his loving kindness, his loyal, steadfast, covenanted love. That was for Israel. That was for Israel. God had made promises to them. They were his nation. He had promised to preserve them, to give them hope and a future and a salvation. That doesn't mean every individual in the nation came to love and serve and honor God and would ultimately receive these blessings, but the nation as a whole. But everyone outside this nation did not have this special kind of covenant love. God did not bind himself in covenant to love them and to redeem them and save them. So Gentiles are excluded. And Paul written in another letter in Ephesians chapter 2, he wrote this, speaking to those who are non-Israelites but who come to faith in Christ, but he reminds the non-Israelite Christians of their past. He says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, the, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that's the Jews referred to them as the uncircumcised, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The point Paul was making, in, that he's making in Colossians 2.13, is that the Colossians in their former natural state were separated from God to the greatest extent possible on this earth. They were alienated from him in every way. They were completely without hope and without God in the world. They didn't even have his revelation. That is, until God acted and graciously saved them. Back in verse 13, Paul says, "...in you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him." That is Christ, with Christ, Israel's Messiah. God made the non-Israelites alive together with Christ. So those who are spiritually dead, we have to keep the, uh, the metaphor in mind or the picture in mind. If you're spiritually dead, you can do just as much as someone who's physically dead. You can do just as much as a physically dead person can do to change their condition. 
Man in his natural state, spiritually dead, is helpless as a corpse. Only God can change your condition. Because only God can give life. He's the source of life, the author of life. So only God can change the condition of a spiritually dead person. And Paul says, you were spiritually dead, as hopeless and helpless as can be, but God saved you by giving you spiritual life and making you alive. So listen to what Paul also says in Ephesians, because again, Ephesians and Colossians are very similar. Not exactly the same. He's addressing some different matters in these letters, but they're very similar in the things he's trying to get across. Listen to this. It's dead, but God made you alive. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, the Jews, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he goes on in verse 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So in your natural state, you had no capacity, if you were in Christ, in your natural state, you had no capacity to respond favorably to God. There's nothing in you that would incline you towards him in any favorable way. You had no capacity to do that. You were as spiritually dead as everyone else. But if you have come to truly believe God's word and confessed your guilt as a sinner before God and repented of your rebellion against him and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, his son, as your Lord and Savior, it is not because you chose God. It's because God chose you. You were dead, but God made you alive. Only by God's grace is anyone saved. And it's by his grace and not by our works. It's by his grace, not by our search for meaning and purpose in life. It's by God's grace, not by our own intellectual reasoning. It's by God's grace that you're saved not by your humility and open-mindedness to spiritual truth. It's by God's grace that you're saved, not by your own spiritual sensitivity. God's saving work is pure grace, undeserved kindness, mercy, undeserved, unmerited. Notice that Paul 
says to the Colossians that God made them alive together with Christ. God the Father, by means of the Holy Spirit, united them to his risen and exalted Son. This is what he does when he gives life to the sinner who repents and believes, places their faith in Christ. He, by the Spirit, unites them to his risen and exalted Son so that they become partakers of the Son's life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Those whom the Father has chosen to save, he gives to the Son. And the Son receives them and shares his life with them. Whoever comes to him, who's drawn by the Father, who's given to him by the Father, he'll never cast out. Yet he he gives them life and receives them. Now we've got to ask, how can this be? So if, if sin is the cause of death and separation from God who is holy, how then can sinners be made alive by God and share in the life of Christ? Paul explains how at the end of verse 13. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, you were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So all their trespasses, Paul says, all their offenses against God, all their sin, that which separated them from God and kept them in spiritual death, that which made them enemies of God and deserving only of his righteous wrath, God has graciously forgiven. There's nothing we can do to earn God's forgiveness. In our natural state, there's nothing inherently good or desirable in us that would make God consider showing us favor. Natural person is hostile to God. Natural person does not desire God. He does not seek God. He does not fear God. He does not submit to God. Is there anything in that that God would say, I want to forgive this person? Because I see something there that's worth forgiving. I, I, there was a profound thought that I heard from a uh, pastor, professor, um, in a, a lecture he was giving. He was talking about the nature of God's love. Unlike human love, human love is reactive. We react to something pleasing or desirable to us. We see something you know, pleasing and desirable and good, and we react in love. We're compelled to love. I'm looking at my wife right now. Um, but God's love, is there anything pleasing and desirable good in mankind and in his rebellion against God? There's nothing. God's love, he says, is creative. He doesn't react to anything good. He, he chooses to shower that which is deserving of no good with his grace, and he creates what is desirable and pleasing and good because he makes them alive. 
He forgives that sin. He makes them alive. He reconciles this sinner to himself. He places his spirit within them that they might actually love and honor and worship and serve him. Creative love. Remember that. It's a beautiful... Man's love is reactive. God's love is creative. So nothing in man's natural state will compel him or even have him consider to show kindness and favor. However, those whom God has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, he draws to himself through his word and makes them alive and forgives them of all their sins. God's forgiveness, then, is not drawn out by us. It's not drawn out by us, but it is rather poured out by him. And this saving work is, is based on his sovereign choice for the purpose of displaying his glorious grace. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. God didn't have to save anyone, but he is glorified in doing so because it displays his glorious grace. How else are we going to see grace in the world? God purposed to save a people for himself. It says that Jesus Christ would be the firstborn of many brothers. So Paul reminds the Colossian Christians that they were dead in their trespasses, just like everyone else in this fallen world, until God made them alive and granted them forgiveness. And notice the extent of his forgiveness for those who are in Christ Jesus, his son. Notice the extent. He says, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all of them. His forgiveness is then comprehensive and complete. When you place your faith in Christ, you're, given, you're forgiven not just of certain kinds of sins, you know, maybe some of the, not, the less bad ones. No, you're forgiven of all your sins. And you are forgiven not just of the sins of your past, but of all the sins you will ever commit. Because when God makes a sinner alive, when he grants forgiveness, do you think he's not aware of everything that will happen in days to come? Everything that you will do. He knows it all. He sees all of that sin. And it is all of that sin that he pardons. He forgives. Without such complete and comprehensive forgiveness, you could have no fellowship with him. Think about it. If your sins separate you from life and fellowship with God, and God makes you alive and forgives only what you've done, then your next trespass would separate you once again from life and fellowship with God. 
So when God chooses to pour out his grace and forgiveness, he has your entire life and all your trespasses in view, even those which have not yet come to pass, and he forgives them all. And this is made patently clear in verse 14, where Paul says that God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Literally, having erased, he's forgiven us of all of our trespasses, having erased or blotted out the against us handwritten document concerning the commands, which was opposed to us. This refers to God's personal accounting of our lives in light of his righteous requirements of us. A written document, a record. It's his accounting of our lives in light of his righteous requirements, the commands, the decrees. It's specifically his accounting of our violations of his righteous standards, our moral offenses. And therefore, it consists only of marks against us. It's an accounting not of everything. It's just an accounting, a record of the offenses. So by nature, it is an against us document, and then it gets filled in. The trespasses are recorded. And because there is no one who is righteous, not even one, because there is no one who does not sin, the perfect and exhaustive documentation of our sins is effectively opposed to us. And it is this record that will condemn men to eternal hell at the final judgment. If we turn to Revelation 20, in verses 11 to 15, we see the final judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And what we get from that is if anyone's name is not found in this, written in this book of life, he is judged by the books, the records, according to what he has done, and he will be found guilty. He will be condemned, and the sentencing is cast into eternal hell. So if God's righteous requirement, or if God's requirement is righteousness, if his requirement is righteousness, which is summed up 
in loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself perfectly, would you not be found guilty before him, if that's his standard, if his standard is righteousness? Wouldn't the perfect and exhaustive record of every one of your unrighteous thoughts, words, and actions condemn you? But there's forgiveness with God. Psalm 143, verse 2. If we stood on our own, if we're banking on the scales being balanced in our favor, that's wrong thinking. Because God's standard is perfection, righteous perfection. The psalmist writes, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. And then Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And he does. That's the books by which men will be judged, the counting of their life. He does mark those iniquities. And the reality is, if you had to stand before God and the count of your life, you would be condemned. No one could stand. Everyone at the great white throne judgment is condemned. That's the destiny for all men if they continue as they are in their natural state. But what does Paul say God has done for those who are in Christ? What does he say in verse 14? Canceled the record. He has erased the record that stood against you. The counting of your offenses against him has been wiped clean. If you are in Christ, that record is erased. It is wiped clean. You have been cleared of guilt before him. What a burden, how much of a burden is lifted from that? And then we can ask, how can this happen? How can God, who is holy, righteous, and good, clear you of guilt when you are in fact guilty. How can he do that? You wouldn't tolerate that from a judge in the court. Criminal, found guilty, and the judge says, I forgive you. And doesn't give him the sentencing. Justice is not upheld, right? So how can God do this? He's holy, righteous, and good, but he clears the guilty of their guilt. He erases that record. How can he who is the righteous judge of all the earth be just in erasing your record of offenses against him and granting you full pardon? How can he do that? Paul clarifies and explains how in the second half of the verse of 14, verse 14, this record, it's not that he just wiped it out, erased it. He's, he's set it aside. He's removed it from the midst Nailing it to the cross. So God didn't simply make, for you who are in Christ, he didn't simply make our moral debt disappear. He justly dealt with it. He justly dealt with it through the sacrifice of his son on the cross so that it has truly been paid in full. In Matthew's gospel, we read, 
the account of Christ's crucifixion. And it says, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now that was the charge that the Roman officials placed over his head, indicating to all who passed by the reason why he had been condemned to death. Of course, the chief priests of the Jews objected, and they said that the charge should rather read, This man said, I am king of the Jews. However, the reality is, the real charge over his head could not be seen. And it had been placed there by God himself. It read, if we could, you know, just imagine it. What did it read? The sins of his people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter wrote, He himself, Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross. And if we go all the way back, 700 years before Christ even came into the world, God revealed through Isaiah the prophet the work that his son would accomplish, that God's son would accomplish, that Christ would accomplish. He wrote, he revealed, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He appeared to be a man, well, condemned to death by men, dying a criminal's death. And because he was put on a cross or because he was hung on a tree, we considered him cursed by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So according to God's predetermined plan, justice was served at the cross by a perfect substitute, Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that grace and mercy could be righteously poured out on those who are his, those whom God chose in him before the foundation of the world. He bore the sins of his people. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. So God did not erase our record of sin in order to hide or destroy the damning evidence that was against us. He erased it. He wiped it out because it was rendered null and void by the fact that all our sins were fully and justly punished through the death of Christ in our place. He nailed our full list of charges to the cross. And on that cross, 
Jesus voluntarily died in our place in order to fully satisfy the righteous wrath of God towards us for our sins. And that is why it's said in Romans 8.1, Paul wrote this in one of his other letters, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No condemnation. Because what would condemn you was condemned in Christ because he took that which condemned you to himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be forgiven and become the righteousness of God. Receive a righteousness that's not our own. Jesus made it possible for God to justly forgive us and to count us as righteous through faith apart from works and to give us eternal life. Jesus made it possible for God to be just in justifying sinners who believe in his Son. And finally, in verse 15, Paul tells the Colossians what also happened in the wake of Christ's work on the cross. Verse 15, he says, He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. There's a lot of uh, different approaches to explaining this verse, different interpretations. What exactly is Paul getting at? I'd scoured many, many resources and commentaries, and it was fascinating just to see just how many ways we can understand this verse. And I found, came across one commentary and one comment that says, The meaning of nearly every word of this verse is disputed. Thanks for that. <laughs> Didn't make my job any easier, but I want to just focus on the big picture here. What is clear is that this verse is a declaration of God's victory over the devil and his angels, the powers and authorities. We've already seen that in Colossians. He's referring to spiritual powers and authorities, angelic beings. And obviously, in a negative sense, he's referring to those who are in rebellion against God, the devil and his angels. So God has victory over the devil and his angels, those whom Paul referred to in Ephesians as the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And wouldn't you say when you look at the news, at the world, the state of affairs in the world, is it not something that would rightly be called this present darkness? And what's moving it? What's behind all of it? Cosmic powers. Rulers and authorities, it isn't just men in their sin. There are forces at work also in rebellion against God. To kind of maybe offer a, a narrative on, on what we learn in Scripture, to kind of just paint the, the big picture, the devil and his angels are the instigators and leaders of the great rebellion of mankind against God. 
So man sinned against God. He fell into sin, and he lives in rebellion. But it's the devil and his angels who instigated that rebellion and who are leading that rebellion. Man is made in the image of God. And in the beginning, God had given him dominion over the earth. That was his purpose. However, Satan usurped man's dominion by leading the first man and woman to sin against God, which brought to mankind spiritual corruption and death and fully subjected them to Satan's power and influence. No longer did they have the life of God in them, and Satan steps in and works his influence over them. Man's dominion then is effectively became Satan's dominion. God didn't give dominion to the angels. He gave it to man. But Satan and his cohorts decided that if they could get man to rebel against God, they could effectively usurp that dominion. And apart from the grace of God, man would have remained in darkness and in bondage to sin and destined for eternal death once this rebellion began. However, what we read all the way at the beginning in Genesis, as soon as this happens, God promised to undo Satan's work. He promised to send a Savior, the Christ, one born of a woman who would ransom a people for God by his own sacrificial death. And then he would overthrow and ultimately destroy Satan. This Savior would establish an everlasting kingdom that would bring all the kingdoms of this world under Satan's domain to an end. He would effectively restore world dominion to a redeemed humanity. However, here's what we've got to keep in mind. If there were no redemption, if there were no perfect and complete and just atonement for the sins of men, then there would be no redeemed humanity to inhabit this Savior's righteous and everlasting kingdom. There would then be no everlasting kingdom. Satan could still be destroyed, but all of humanity would have to be destroyed as well under the just and righteous wrath of God. And this would mean that Satan's rebellion, at least the the effects of his rebellion, prevail. The redemption of man is the most critical and necessary work of the Savior. And when his hour had come, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, this promised Savior, set his face to go to the cross to make full atonement for the sins of his people. And on that cross, he endured the full wrath of God in their place. And before he gave up his spirit, because no one takes his life from him, he gives it, he lays it down. Before he gave up his spirit on that cross and died, he said, it is finished. So the cross was an instrument of death, became the instrument of redemption. What was a means of execution became the means of reconciliation to God. 
Paul says in one of his letters, the word of the cross, the message of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says in verse 15 in Colossians 2, that it was through Christ's redemptive work on the cross that God disarmed the devil and his angels, the powers and authorities. A more literal translation is that he stripped them. And having stripped them, he put them to open shame. He exposed them, and he did this by triumphing over them in Christ. And this last statement would perhaps better be translated in the following way. He, God put them to open shame by leading them in triumphal procession in Christ. And one commentator kind of draws out this, this picture, helps us understand what does it mean? He led them in triumphal procession. It's not saying they were triumphant. Listen to this. He writes this. The, the picture, quite familiar in the Roman world, is that of a triumphant general leading a parade of victory. The conqueror, riding at the front of his chariot, leads his troops through the streets of the city. Behind them trails a wretched company of vanquished kings, officers, and soldiers, the spoils of battle. Christ, in this picture, is the conquering general. The powers and authorities are the vanquished enemy, displayed as the spoils of battle before the entire universe. To the casual observer, the cross appears only to be an instrument of death, the symbol of Christ's defeat. It appeared that way. Paul represents it as Christ's chariot of victory. The victory is God's accomplished through the work of his Son. So verse 15, then, affirms that God's promise to undo the destructive work of Satan has begun to be fulfilled through the sacrificial death of his Son. It was all riding on that. Christ's work on the cross was the decisive victory. It was the decisive victory. With their redemption secured, God will deliver those whom he has chosen from the domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Satan has no hold on them, and he can never separate them from the love of God in Christ. And I think one passage that, that really illustrates what we are seeing in verse 15 and expands upon it is in Hebrews chapter 2. Little did you know we're going to get two scripture readings this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. You can turn there. It'll be up on the screen, but this is a long one. But we're going to read it. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Listen to what he says. And again, he's, this whole book is about the superiority of Christ. Superior even to the angels. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. 
What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's a reference to Psalm 8, but you think about it. When you read about creation, what's the crowning point in creation? Creation of man in God's image. Angels don't bear that image. And yet man in his initial state, in some ways, was lower or lesser just because he was finite. But he was given honor. He was given dominion over the earth. But this passage is going to move on from this reality of the fact that man was created in the image of God and given dominion to an ultimate reality that will be fulfilled. Verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control because they're ultimately saying the ultimate man is Christ. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation Perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And then Paul had written in 2 Timothy, he he writes this, again, about this, this victorious saving work of Christ the one who took on flesh to become the God-man, to atone for the sins of his people, to, to secure a future kingdom and a redeemed humanity. He writes this, God saved us and called us to a holy, a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So there's the victory that he has secured, the decisive victory that has rendered Satan's rebellion ultimately a failure and guaranteed not only his future judgment, but the end of his dominion, the end of the effects of his rebellion and the curse of sin, and the hope of a glorious future everlasting kingdom where righteousness dwells and where 
Christ, the righteous king, will rule in righteousness over a redeemed humanity, fulfilling the original purpose of God for mankind. So for those of you who are in Christ, rejoice in the completeness and sufficiency of God's saving work. And that's what Paul is getting at in Colossians again and again. His salvation is complete and sufficient in Christ. You need nothing else if you have Christ. In Christ, God has granted us eternal life, forgiveness of all our sins, and victory over the enemy of our souls. And I just want to, in closing, we sing a song in Christ alone. I kept thinking it in my mind when I'm reading about this victory accomplished on the cross, what God has done in Christ Beautifully written, starting in the middle, meditate on these words. On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. For the Christian, here in the death of Christ, I live. You've been made alive. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. So, no guilt in life, no fear in death. Think about that. Death for the Christian is just the doorway into the glorious presence of heaven, the presence of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such rich truth that you have given to us, that you have, the things you have made known to us, the the wonders and glories of the salvation that you have brought to us through your Son. Let us not forget the completeness and the sufficiency of your saving work. May we find security in it, peace in it. Maybe we rejoice that it truly is finished and that now we can be free from the guilt of sin, knowing that we are not condemned, Lord, but that you have rescued us, you have given us life, and you've called us to be your people, and now you are empowering us to do just that even in this fallen world, to represent you, to honor you, as you are continually sanctifying us and making us more like your Son, that when you do call us home, that we would be fully like him, resurrected, glorified, made immortal and imperishable, and being able to inhabit this everlasting kingdom that he will establish. And Father, we pray for for those who are not in Christ that you would grant them faith, that you would lead them 
to repentance, that you would draw them to the truth that you have made known, this truth of salvation, the problem of their sin, the fact that they cannot stand in the judgment, they will be condemned if they continue on their path, but that you have made forgiveness available in Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would give them ears to hear, give them a heart to believe, that they might through faith receive forgiveness of all their sins. May you pour out your grace upon them. Thank you for this church, Father. Keep us united in love and in faith and in purity. Help us to honor you. Help us to live our lives out of, of gratitude for all that you've done for us in Christ. Help us continue in grace. Stand in grace and give you glory for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.